Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. And uh, the reason I have so many thoughts here is because I want to give you again a few of the introductory thoughts on this 23rd chapter, because these are the seven feasts of Jehovah. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the First Fruits, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. All of these are found in this uh, chapter, the 23rd chapter. And I'll give you briefly what they mean. I uh, mentioned this last week, and I just have a few thoughts there that I'll repeat. The Passover represents the death of Christ. And the unleavened bread, the barrel of Christ, however, some people say the unleavened bread represents the fellowship with Christ, but uh, we won't argue over that point because we have different thoughts that come through the uh, theological realm. And then the Feast of First Fruits, everyone agrees on that, speaks of the resurrection of Christ. And the Feast of Pentecost speaks of the infilling of the Holy Spirit because it was on the day of Pentecost and that, uh, that uh, the Holy Spirit came upon the church. And then there's an interval of time. If you'll notice in this 23rd chapter, there's an interval of time between the Feast of Pentecost and the next one, which is the Feast of Trumpets. And uh, I might just say in passing, and we'll teach it later on, that there's since Pentecost, there's been an interval of time and the Feast of Trumpets the trumpet has not yet sounded. So we've had a long interval of time as well as on the Jewish calendar. Which is, uh, of course, prophetic of the time uh, that, that exists now. And then the Feast of Atonement uh, speaks of the tribulation period. And then the Feast of uh, Tabernacles speaks of the millennium. And so I just wanted to review those few points there before we get into the a lesson that we have tonight. And so we'll let that suffice for those. Now then, uh, we got down to the thinking about the Feast of, of uh, the First Fruits. We dealt with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Let's read down at least to verse uh, 12, if you will. It says, And the Lord, you have uh, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them concerning the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. Six days shall be work done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, and holy convocation, ye shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. This is not one of the feasts, but this points out that uh, Israel was to remember the Sabbath, which uh, was holy to them. And of course, under the law, they had laws concerning the Sabbath. We have now we celebrate the Lord's Day as far as assembling together and, and worshiping God. And uh, so that much is different than it was uh, for Israel. And we'll talk about that when we get to our notes. Now, then, verse 4 says, These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations which ye shall proclaim in their seasons. In the fourteenth day of the first month, that even, is the Lord's Passover. So here you have the Feast of Passover. 
And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So on the fourteenth day, we said that represents the uh, death of Christ. And we said that the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins with a time in which Jesus was buried. And of course, they were to have no leaven in their houses. And this Unleavened Bread Feast, seven days you must eat unleavened bread. And then it says in verse 7, In the first day you shall have an holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. But you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. In the seventh day is your holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. Then we came down to verse 9, and this is where we pick up for tonight. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye be come into the land which I give you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. And on the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And ye shall offer that day when ye wave the sheaf, uh, and he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord. Now then, we read there in verse 10 that there was to be waved before the Lord a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest. Now then, this this feast of first fruits represents the resurrection of Christ. <clears throat> and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Because we want to see the uh, symbolical meaning or the picture, picturesque meaning, if you want to call it that, that symbolizes and picturizes the resurrection of Christ. Now notice it was the morrow after the Sabbath. And of course, we find that uh, that would be, as far as Jewish time is concerned, and Jewish calendar is concerned. So the uh, Sabbath was on Saturday, and the morrow after that would be the first day of the week, which in which we recognize the resurrection of Christ. And these first fruits represent the resurrection of Christ. Now, no doubt, uh, it. Uh, this is the resurrection of Christ on the first day of the week. And if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we can get this very specifically because a lot of Paul's preaching here on the resurrection comes into view. <clears throat> but if you'll notice beginning with verse 12, now if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, and you're going down and we preached on that, uh, on the... Uh, the last Sunday. Now then, it says uh, down in verse 20, But now is Christ risen from the dead, and look at this very carefully, and become the firstfruits of them that slept. So verse 20 is the critical verse here. So Christ is the firstfruits of them that slept. So His resurrection uh, is in line with what it says there. Is the feast of the first fruits in the Old Testament. The feast of first fruits predicted the resurrection of Christ. And of course, uh, it was on the third day that he should rise again, and he rose again on the third day. Now, notice it says first fruits. It doesn't say first fruit, but it says first fruits. And this is plural, isn't it? 
It's not singular. He became the first fruits of them that slept. And if you remember in Matthew's Gospel, it tells us that um, Matthew 27, you can read verses 50 through 53. And it tells us that when Christ rose from the dead, or when Christ died on the cross, and then His resurrection, that many appeared, many of those that were asleep appeared or were resurrected at Christ's uh, resurrection and appeared, went out in the city and appeared unto many. The company which went with Christ into heaven was a guarantee that others would be presented. We're not told what happened to these. Uh, some believe that they were raptured into heaven. And some believe that they were left here on the earth to die again. But we know that they were not found uh, kind of like Enoch. You know, he walked with God and was not found for God took him. And the, the Bible doesn't even speak of what happened to these that, that, rose, that were resurrected. But Christ rose from the dead, we know for sure. And we know that all these uh, put up stories about finding His tomb and bones in it is a mere fabrication in uh, trying to prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead and also uh, making the gospel stories uh, null and void because if that's not, if, uh, if uh, that is true, then all the gospel record and all the Bible is teaching us something that's wrong. And the Bible teaches us the truth that Jesus rose again the third day and that He appeared unto many. In 1 Corinthians 15, you have the record of it there. How many appeared to? First of all, he, uh, it says, uh, He was seen of Cephas, verse 5, and then of the twelve. After that, above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are falling asleep. So, at, in Paul's writings and at Paul's time, he had witnessed that 500 brethren had seen Jesus at one time. And then many were already passed on by this time. But uh, we have the record of all the appearances of Christ in the Gospels and how He appeared to them after His resurrection, how that He did eat with them, how He spoke to them, how He showed them the place in His hands and in His side to prove to doubting Thomas that, that it was the same Jesus that was crucified, that was risen again. And I believe that any uh, set of evidence is overwhelming as far as evidence of Christ's resurrection. And uh, so these people are coming along with these various thoughts uh, and uh, stories that they put up. I just can't accept them and don't. I do not accept them because I believe what the Bible says more than what they say. In fact, they say that they can take the DNA of those bones there, but what are you going to compare it to? You've got to have something to compare DNA to. Where are you going to get the one to, to compare it to? So, I'm not a scientist or DNA uh educated person, but I know that I know at least that much. You can't just say, here's some DNA and you know <laughs> you gotta have somebody to, to connect it with and I don't believe they have any somebody to do that. So anyway, Christ did not rise alone. The company uh, was with him. The first fruits were always weighed before the Lord. So this was a evidence that they were weighed before the Lord or before Almighty God. And so we said that there was uh, 
a time that would be representing the harvest time that is to come in the future. And uh, 1,900 years or maybe 2,000. You know my notes are a little bit old, so we could update that to 2,000 years. Because we were using round numbers when we put it in the 1950s. These notes are 1950 notes, by the way. And uh, so, uh, we were using round numbers even then. So it was almost 2,000 years. And now we would say, 2,000 years ago, the first fruits were waved before the Lord. And one day shortly, the heavens will open, the saints of God will be raised, and the harvest will be complete. And all this will take place. That's predicted and prophetic by these feasts in the Old Testament. And then you come on down, if you read further down, we'll find the Feast of Pentecost. Let's read on down in Leviticus chapter 23. Uh, We read verse uh, 10 and 11. But verse 12 says, You you shall offer that day uh, when you weigh the sheaf uh, and he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord. And by the way, burnt offerings were those offerings that were wholly acceptable to the Lord and were really for the Lord. So the burnt offering represents uh, a complete sweet savor sacrifice to God at the same time. And the meat offering thereof shall be two-tenths deals of fine flour mingled with oil and an offering made by fire unto the Lord for a sweet savor. And the drink offering thereof shall be of wine, the fourth part of an hen. And ye shall eat neither bread, nor parched corn, nor green ears, until the selfsame day that ye have brought an offering unto your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. Now verse 15 brings us to the Feast of Pentecost. And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath. That would be the resurrection of Christ. From the day that you brought the sheaf of a wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. That's seven times seven is forty-nine days. Now look, even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath, that would be fifty days, right? Shall ye number fifty days, and ye shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. And here this is typical of Pentecost. This happened 50 days after the resurrection of Christ. And so it's the Feast of Pentecost. And you know people talk about another Pentecost. There will never be another Pentecost. There may be experiences somewhat resembling. But there will never be another Pentecost because that was a period of time in which this prophecy was fulfilled concerning the day of Pentecost. And we know that it says when the day of Pentecost was fully come, that's Acts chapter 2 verse 1, they were all with one accord in one place and the Holy Spirit came upon them. And uh, we'll get into that in just a moment. But this prophecy uh, was uh, fulfilled. It's clear and marvelous. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit was 50 days after after Christ's resurrection. And the great day of the church is the first day of the week, not the ceremonial Sabbath, by the way. The Christian has not Sabbath. The Christian is redeemed from the curse of the law and curse of death. And uh, by the way, the Sabbath day would 
if they, it was misused even for Israel, it could bring death. They were not to as much as kindle a fire on the Sabbath day in the Old Testament. They were not to walk certain length of time. They were not to cook any meals. I mean, we'd be in a fix today, wouldn't we? And yet you find people claim they're Sabbath day keepers today, but they're not really. If you go back and study the Sabbath in the Old Testament, you'll find that there were many restrictions, many privileges, but there were many restrictions. And the Christian today is not under those restrictions because Jesus Christ died for our sins and He rose on the first day of the week. And the disciples, Acts 20, verse 7, uh, assembled together on the first day of the week to break bread in remembrance. And they were taking the, the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Christ's re- death and resurrection. And it was upon the first day of the week that they assembled together. And it's called the Lord's Day. And it's called the Lord's Day by John in the book of Revelation. He said, being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, well, this revelation of what we have recorded in the Bible was given to John. And so there's so many things that we could study, but we don't want to get too far off the track that we're dealing with here. But it was 50 days. In verse 16, For unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall you number 50 days, and you shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. The Feast of Pentecost was this 50 days. The first Passover lamb was slain at a Jewish altar, and the second on the Roman cross. Jesus was slain and put on the cross. The second Passover lamb was buried, carrying our sins into everlasting forgetfulness. This same lamb arose on the third day, and in due time he ascended back to heaven. And fifty days after the resurrection came the Holy Spirit of God to infill the church. By the way, there had to be a church. If you turn to Acts chapter 2, and of course there's a lot of things we could point out, but uh, I just want to point out some things I have in the margin of my Bible to show you about the church. Before Pentecost, some people were saying, the church began on the day of Pentecost, and many theologians claim that. I think the church was infilled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to go out and to witness and to do what the Lord had told them to wait for till you be endued with power from on high and then go forth and and do your witnessing. But let me give you some things before Pentecost. Before Pentecost. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. Upon this rock I will build my church. Acts 2, verses 1 through 4, and we will read that in Acts chapter 2 in a moment, where it tells us that it was the Holy Spirit filled this church on the day of Pentecost. And Jesus had a large, large group of disciples before Pentecost. In John 1, 31 through 51, you'll find that there were many disciples. And uh, you'll find that all the apostles were there and many followers of Jesus. He chose twelve of these disciples, and He named them apostles. That's in Luke 6, verse 12 through 16, and we just studied it in Mark 3, verses 18 and 19. 
Remember, I referred to it this morning in Sunday school where He sent them forth. He named them apostles and sent them forth to heal all manners of sickness and disease and to cast out demons in our Sunday school lesson. How many remember the Sunday school lesson? Does anybody? Okay, some do. That's good. And by the way, they had a treasure. They had Judas. He wasn't a very good one. Thank God we got a better one. But... And He taught them and trained them for three and a half years. He taught these apostles. He trained them. I mean, if you have a group of people that you're teaching and preaching to, and they're assembled together, and they're sent forth to do a work, and besides that, He sent out 70 besides the 12 to spread the the Gospel. And He gave them power as well. And the seventy returned and marveled that the spirits were subject to them. And Jesus said to those seventy, He said, Marvel not that the spirits are subject unto you, but He says, The greatest marvel is that your names are written in heaven. That's the greatest blessing. So, that's quite a church, isn't it? And then on the day of Pentecost, you find that there were a hundred and twenty. If you glance back in... Verse 15. You haven't opened Acts chapter 2. Look at Acts 1 verse 15. In those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said the number of the names together were about 120. There was 120 of them waiting for this infilling of the Holy Spirit. What were they if they were not a church? And if they were not led by the apostles? It says that God set some in the church first apostles. You'll find that in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, the last verses. He set some in the church first apostles and prophets and so on and so forth. And uh, you'll find that. Let's see if I can find it in the book of Ephesians. And there's two passages there that that's important. But uh, Ephesians 2... Okay. Uh, notice in verse. Uh, well, let's just read uh, Ephesians two verse twenty. It says, "Are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye are also builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit." And he's using the Ephesian church to prove this very thing. But in uh, Ephesians 4, verse 11 says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So all of these were involved in the local church uh, before the day of Pentecost. So, in my mind, I think that the church was established. Why did I get off on that? Let's go ahead and give you some more. So, he sent these out to work, back in Acts chapter 2 now. They were not only uh, taught for three and a half years, they were called, they were chosen, they were named apostles. But another thing, he sent them out to work, and they went out to witness. And not only the twelve, but the seventy. That's eighty-two preachers. You know, a church with 82 preachers is a pretty good-sized church. Can you imagine that? 
82 preachers they had before the day of Pentecost. And then some people say, well, it began on the day of Pentecost. Something did begin, but it was the empowering of that church to be the witnesses that the Lord wanted them to be. And ever since that time, hundreds of souls have been saved. And on that day, Peter preached and 3,000 souls were saved on the day of Pentecost. So, there's a lot of teaching uh, out in the realm of Christendom that uh, theologians have argued over through the centuries until this very day. And you'll find that uh, many of them today say, well, that was the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. By the way, in the book of John, it says that they received the Holy Spirit before this time too. Jesus, it says, Jesus breathed on them and they and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And they received the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit at the same time in Acts chapter 2 came to empower the church and to infill the church. And if you go on down uh, in verse 16, it says, Men and brethren, this Scripture must needs have been fulfilled which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake, before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus, for he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased the field with a reward of iniquity, and falling headlong he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known to all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch that that field is called in their proper tongue a seldomer, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric, that means his office, let another take. Wherefore, now Peter says, Wherefore of these men, which have accompanied with us at the same time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto the same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of His resurrection. Peter is saying, one has fallen from his office, that was Judas. And he says, we're going to decide who should fill his place now. They had a business meeting. And he says, which of these that, have, that meet the requirements, beginning from the baptism of John, have continued with us, and they are witnesses of His resurrection, and this was a qualification of the one that was to be chosen. Uh, and they appointed two, Joseph called Barabbas, Bar- Barsabas, not Barabbas, but Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knoweth the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that it might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, their votes concerning it, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So they elected a person. Now this is before Acts chapter 2, where you find the day of Pentecost. They elected a person to take the place of uh, Judas that had fallen from his office. Now some say, well... They should have waited for the Apostle Paul to make the twelfth. Well, it's true that the Apostle Paul was chosen as one born out of due time. It's true that God ordained him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. 
But the the judicial number and the number of the apostles, the number of the tribes of Israel was twelve, the number of the apostles was twelve, and this had to be accounted for at this particular time. And then, after that was accounted for, upon the day of Pentecost, if you look in chapter 2 of Acts, it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. They were waiting for this promise. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with, by the way, not unknown tongues, but look at that, other tongues. And a tongue is a language. Other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Holy Spirit so filled them that they spake in other languages. Now look. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them in his own language. Look at that. Every man heard them in his own language. So that when they spoke with other tongues, it was all knowledgeable to each and every person. Now, there's, there are many that make the miracle in the tongue. The miracle is in the ear. Amen. Because it says all these that heard them speak, all these that were speaking were Galileans. But every man heard them in their own language, tongue, wherein they were born. So the Holy Spirit was interpreted to, uh, or interpreted the message that Peter preached to all these different ones. And there were 16... Uh, dialects here. Let me go ahead and read it. In verse 7, And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? They didn't have all these other languages. And now hear we, how hear we every man in our own language, our own tongue, wherein we were born. How do we hear in our own t- lung, tongue, wherein we were born? So when Peter was speaking, and any of the others were speaking, all these different ones heard the message that Peter was speaking in their own language. They didn't hear something they didn't know about. They spake with other tongues. Now look, follow it down. Parathenes and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Persia, and Pamphylia in Egypt, and the parts of Libya about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. They all heard in their own language. You know, there's been so much misunderstanding about the day of Pentecost and other tongues. And it was one message that was going out from Peter or whoever else was speaking, but especially Peter. And the message that he was going was the wonderful works of God would uh, most likely be the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and how that now had come the time that the Holy Spirit was uh, infilling the church with His uh, 
presence and power. That would probably be the message of wonderful works of God. We know that, that, that those things are the wonderful works of God. How that Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose again the third day, was seen forty days, and then ascended back to the right hand of God. And ten days later, the Holy Spirit, according to the day of Pentecost in the Old Testament, fifty days after that uh, record of Christ's resurrection, or what was symbolical of Christ's resurrection, the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. And so it's all in harmony. And they heard the wonderful works of God in their own language. Just imagine, okay, up here Peter is speaking. And he's speaking to, to all the people, as well as the 120 that were there heard him. And all the people from these various parts of the country. And it named 16 different dialects there. But every one of them didn't hear Peter as a Galilean. They heard the wonderful works of God in their own language. So what they received was greater than what was just being spoken. How God caused them to understand what Peter was saying. That's the miracle. So sometimes we say the miracle of the day of Pentecost was in the tongue. Well, you might, I might beg to think, get you to think, maybe it was in the ear. Because Peter was speaking, and the Holy Spirit was interpreting that to every individual out there. I mean, it's, it's pretty, it, that would be pretty difficult for a, a person to do if you had an interpreter here say, well, there's 16 different dialects. I'm sure you couldn't understand it then. If a person was trying to interpret all uh, to everyone that was out there unless it was the Holy Spirit interpreting the words of Peter when he spoke. So it was the Holy Spirit that was doing it. And uh, it says, And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? And then, of course, there were others mocking because of this wonderful thing that was happening to the church. Let's get back to this. So we've talked about... Uh, the day of Pentecost, and we talked about that uh, uh, there will never be another day of Pentecost. Pentecost has fully come as far as the prophetic time. The, the prophetic time of Christ's resurrection has already come, right? Now it's Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. The prophetic meaning of the day of Pentecost has already come. And on that day, the entire Spirit of God as a person came upon the believer of the infant church and empowering it and has been abiding upon her ever since. And Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And he says, after I go away, I'm going to send the Comforter and he will dwell with you and he shall be in you. And he's in believers by virtue of the new birth. Uh, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, I believe 13 and 14, listen carefully, in whom ye also trusted, trusted, after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, the word doesn't mean a long time after, but upon believing, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of His glory. 
So you are you have and possess the Holy Spirit the very instant you receive Christ as your Savior. Every one of us here who have put our faith and trust in Jesus have God's Holy Spirit. He manifests Himself uh, into our lives. He directs us according to God's Word. And He bears witness with the Word of truth. And He reveals the things of God to us. He works with our conscience to convict us of our sins and our shortcomings. Some people say, you know, my conscience bothered me. Well, thank God. Because that keeps you straight, doesn't it? That makes you think about where you are spiritually. And then when you think about that, you say, well, I need to, to confess this or that or the other uh, to the Lord and repent of my sin and draw closer to God. And it, it helps us in our Christian life. There's a little saying that conscience doth make cowards of us all. And it does. It makes us afraid of ourselves. And then we need to turn to God. And the Holy Spirit is an aid, the greatest aid to, to uh, help our conscience not to become seared over like some were spoken of by Paul. Their conscience became seared. Well, where were we? He's talking about the day of Pentecost. Okay. And then we find that uh, the church began to grow on Pentecost and has been growing ever since. These 2,000 years. I've got 1,900 in my notes. But you see, we've come a long way since then. And even then, when we're using round numbers, it was 1,950. So, uh, or thereabouts. So, uh, some things about this feast, they were to bake the loaves with leaven. I want you to notice that. This is a real interesting thing. If you have Leviticus 23, <clears throat> when we're reading about the 50 days, look at verse 16 again, if you will. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall ye number 50 days, and ye shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. Look at that. Ye shall bring out of your habitation two loaves uh, of two-tenth deals. They shall be of fine flour. Now look here. They shall be bacon with leaven. We said, well, what about unleavened bread? We've already talked about that some. But they shall be bacon with leaven. Why is it that we find here that there's unleavened? This is a very fundamental point. Even though regenerated by the Holy Spirit, as Christians we are, and even filled by the Holy Spirit, the believer still lives in a body of flesh. Leaven is a type of evil. There's no such thing as the eradication of the fleshly nature. When you're saved, God does not do away with your fleshly nature. And by the way, that fleshly nature is what? A carnal nature, isn't it? And God does not do away with that when you become saved. I mean, I think most of us who are saved are mindful of that, aren't we? Aren't you mindful of the fact that you still have a sinful nature? If you're not, well, uh, you know, I think we need to take some more lessons, don't we? But I think we're mindful of the fact that it's not eradicated. 
And therefore the loaves of fine flour are bacon with leaven. And this is important, that Jesus said that which is born of the flesh is flesh. It's never going to change. But He said, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that the Spirit wrestles against the flesh and the flesh against the Spirit. And these are contrary one to another. You see, we have a warfare going on in our being, don't we? And we have to fight it every day. There's a constant warfare. You can't get up in the morning and say, I'm going to have a perfect day because I'm going to live in the Spirit. Well, old devil will come along and cause you some problems. The flesh within you will rise up and cause you some more problems. And by the way, we blame a lot of it on the devil. It's our own fault. But anyway, be that as it may, there's no such a thing as a sinless Christian except in the fact that we're sinless because of Christ. We have a spiritual nature and we have a carnal nature. And these are always fighting and will be until the day we die. And Jesus had said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And all of the different branches of the holiness friends would never have existed had they realized this fundamental truth. They wouldn't have said, well, you know, we're going to Live a holy, sinless life. There's some that think they're sinless, but they're not. And no man is. It doesn't make any difference how dedicated he may be to God. And we should be dedicated to the Lord. We should be set apart to the Lord. But it doesn't mean that we're going to live in this world without some carnal thought or deed or word creeping into our lives. We don't want it to be that way. But it's there. And we're going to have to deal with it the rest of our days. In one of these days, the Lord's going to take us out of this world and present us without fault and blameless before the present before His presence. But until then, we're not. And we must realize that's why these cakes were baking with leaven. But I want you to notice something else. That this was recognized by the Lord, even back there, that they were to bake it with leaven. And it's by the grace of God that He's provided an unblemished sacrifice which typifies the truth of Christ's perfections and not our sinfulness that's ever before God's view. Our sinfulness is before God's view. But look at the next verse. It says after that, 11, they are the first fruits unto the Lord. Now verse 18, and ye shall offer with the bread seven lambs without blemish. By the way, the seven lambs take care of the sins. And one young bullock and two he rams and they shall be a burnt offering for a burnt offering unto the Lord which their, with their meat offering and their drink offering even the offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of goats for a sin offering and two lambs of the first year for a sacrifice of peace offering. You see, you still have to have these sacrifices because the Loaves that are bacon with leaven represent that we still have evil and still have sin. 
And I've taught you time and time again how that leaven represents sin and unleavened bread represents purity. And if you go over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, let's turn to that one again and kind of think upon what we're talking about here. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want you to look at it carefully. And verse uh, 7. Well, verse 6. And Paul was talking about getting some evil person uh, to be disciplined by the church. And he says in verse 6, Your glory is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven, that's typical of sin, leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, for as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, Neither were the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, leaven here represented malice and wickedness. And the unleavened bread was that of sincerity and truth. You see how leaven represents the evil aspect, and unleavened bread represents the good or the pure aspect, sincerity and truth. Now then you tie that back in to where that they were to bake those loaves with leaven. It shows that there's a recognition that these loaves representing us shows us that there's still leaven. Even after the day of Pentecost, which is represented here in Leviticus chapter 23 that we just read, even after the day of Pentecost, the church was set apart to the Lord infilled with the Holy Spirit, sent forth to do the things of God, and yet the recognition that we're still